Thank you so much for joining me here on the Transportation and Logistics Podcast, powered by Atlanta Dispatch and Humblebee Enterprises. I'm very excited to be here with a special guest. We have Matt Perkins, who is the is the co-founder and VP of Operations at Business to Business Logistics LLC. And before we begin. Just want to say that the Dispatcher's Guide to the Galaxy is available now as an ebook and a physical book. And you can acquire your copy online from barnesandnobles.com or Amazon. And if you're into the ebook space, you can get that bad boy for Apple. But look, Matt, again, my brother, thank you so much for joining me. How's everything your way? It's good, Jory. Thanks for having me. The uh, sun's coming out. The sun's coming out, so... No complaints. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, that's beautiful to hear. And look, we got a chance to meet each other at Brother Ramel Watley's Freight Fest. So big shout out to him. Always putting people together. That's what he does. Um, for those who have not had an opportunity to encounter you in the past, please give us a, a brief introduction. Like, what are you currently working on? What do you have your hands in? And how'd you get into the supply chain? Oh, we'll start oh, we'll from start from start from the major introduction, introduction to, to transportation and freight came, came from my college, from my college days. days. I got recruited, I got recruited by, Hub by Hub Group, and I was and doing, I was doing simple, track simple, simple track and trace, just, just setting out setting the information out via fax. If anyone remembers what a fax machine does, but yeah, yeah, I used to, and we're not talking just fax machine with printer paper. We're talking fax machine with the roll paper, the the laser paper. So we, um, uh, you know, I sent out that information and started learning just the basics of track and trace terms and trucking companies, things like that. But I quickly turned an eight-hour day into a four-hour day. So I said, this is not going to be a good job for me uh, post-graduation because I'm going to be bored for about four hours a day. So I, uh, I left there and I actually started working for a customer. And I was the decision maker for a latex glove manufacturer. And so I talked to trucking company salespeople, just like myself today, but uh, had, had a lot of free lunches, gained a lot of weight, um, but really learned the ins and outs of being a customer, running warehouses, running public warehouses, because not only was our product stored in a warehouse that we owned, but we also used third-party warehouses. So I learned about all those you know, the budgeting and the terminology and dealing with in and out with skids and everything like that. And then from there, I just, I didn't see a path of uh, promotion there because most of the management was pretty young uh, and there for a while. So I spoke to one of my sales reps and she connected me with a broker and that broker I'm still friends with today. He is actually my mentor. And, um, and here we are today, basically between then and here, I worked for them for a few years, just did everything. I stapled paper when paper was still a thing and I tracked and traced again and I did carrier sales and then I moved to customer sales. Um, I worked for another brokerage in between and then after that brokerage, I started my own with my business partner today. Well, nice, brother. Look, thank you so much for that intro and man, I can only imagine how streamlined business is today with everything going to electrification, you know, everything you can do electronically. And even my 
exposure into the the game as a dispatcher, it was still during a time when a lot of brokers required you to fax things in, you know? So I can only imagine how much time you're saving now just by way of, um, you know, the industry catching up technology-wise. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, mean, in the early early days, I walked walked in my first brokerage brokerage, and there was tables tables filled filled with paper. And they and said, they well, said, here's your learning lesson number one. Start lining up all the rate agreements with the load agreements, the invoices with the loads. And we, we, we basically, we basically built, built a book, book for, every for every load. And, and that book, that book would, would contain the load tender, tender the, rate the rate agreement, the POD, the POD and, and any you know, supporting, you know, supporting documentation. documentation. Those would go to cabinet. cabinet. And then after and then five, after five gets, full, gets full, we would start, we would using, start banker using banker boxes. And those and would, those stay, would for stay for a while before, before I don't know I what, don't they, know did what they did with it. They, they burned it or archived, or archived it somewhere. somewhere. But if but I, if wanted, I a POD, wanted a POD, I had to go, had to go find, find that 50 load 50 range, load range in, 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 a folder, in a folder, grab the grab load, and then unstable the paperwork. Scan, scan the, uh, the uh, POD. POD. <laughs> and then, and then, and then email, email it off. And then I'd have to go back and restaple. And restaple. Yep. And put the paper back away. <laughs> so that, that, so was, that, that was, was the, that old, was the old, way. old way. And, and today, if you're a customer, you need a POD. I just, I just pull up my pull TMS, up my and, TMS send and send it away, send it away via, email. via email. Yeah, yeah, man. It's, uh, it's beautiful these days. And I'm happy to really be catching my stride during this season with these advances and having all of these 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 folks here to help us facilitate business. But look, again, I appreciate you for that background. And you went through understanding that Hub Group had opportunities. It was just going to be a little bit mundane. You got a few other opportunities to really get your your your, your, your nails in there. At that point, when you were considering growing with the company or having to do something else, you said that you decided that you were going to start building your own company. Like what gave you that confidence to say that you had gotten all the game you needed from these corporate structures and these other entities before, you know, actually moving on for your own company? So there are two there are things, two I, would things I would say. There's, There's the way I'm, the way wired, I'm wired and then, and then circumstances. circumstances. So the way I'm wired is just simply, uh, since, since the age of five, I've wanted to own a company. I had some, I had sick, some twisted sick, idea twisted idea that, that in, the future, in the future I would own, I would own everything, everything I, wanted I wanted to do. To do. So if, so if I, wanted I wanted to buy a car, I would own a car dealership. If I wanted to eat, I'd own a grocery store. I it, That's just how my mind worked when I was five. So, and even at a younger age before college, I was, you know, a paper boy with employees. My friends would work for me and deliver papers and collect money. And I did advertising for a lawn mowing service. I mean, I've always been entrepreneurial uh, at heart and in my head. So there's that. But then there's the confidence to actually execute on that. And that came from that came from a loss, actually. So what happened in 2008, 2009, for anyone that was, you know, uh, really aware of economic conditions, we saw a huge recession. The housing market imploded onto itself through junk mortgages and took the entire U.S. economy with it. So I, like many others, lost a good spot of business because my customer was a third party. 
and their customer was the actual asset owner of the freight and they went shopping for better rates and they found it because the economy uh, sank. So I lost a lot of my business. Um, I would say in that year between my son being born, my wife losing her job over a company bankruptcy and me losing 50% of, or 40% of my income, we lost like a household 50% of income and added a dependent there. So but I quickly rebounded, got things going, and I sat there one day in between rebuilding it myself and realizing that while a team did rebuild it with me, right? I had a care team. I didn't like grab all this new freight and book it myself. A team did help me. But at the end of the day, I landed the customer. I negotiated everything. I got myself back up. I got myself out of financial trouble. And my boss made a few poor decisions and made a few bad moves as a leader. And I finally said, you know what? I can sit here and carve out a, a healthy living keeping, you know, we'll say 15 to 20% of the profits, or I can go on my own with 100% of the profits. While I won't retain it all because I'll have to pay things out, I at least get to control my destiny. And so me and my partner, we were co-workers first, and we decided to make that plunge. That right there is essentially the American dream. Nobody wants to go through the down cycle that forces your hand, obviously, but being able to realize where you are, uh, gather yourself by the bootstraps, pull yourself up and then say, you know what, there's actually more to this and let me pivot a bit so that I can experience that side of things. That is essentially the American dream. So kudos to you. And while perusing the business to business logistics website, man, I noticed that you guys run the full gamut of services. Like you got the of course, the FTL, the LTLs, you know, well, let me say the FTLs with dry van and then the LTLs, the refrigerated, and I can name about 10 more, but let's just say intermodal drage, parcel, and international shipping. When you think about the way that the market crashed back in 2008, uh, how, is, how important is it right now as a brokerage to diversify the book of business that you're, you're eating off of? We talk about diversification, but we also talk about niches a lot in our industry because being a general know-it-all doesn't really get the customer's interest anymore. Um, as a business owner um, of a company that's got employees and agents and everything with a pretty wide reach, I think it's important to have niches within your, or I'm, I'm sorry, let me step back. It's important to have diversification in your network as a whole. So for instance, I have that customer sales rep that does specialized shipping, international shipping. In fact, he's working on a quote for me directly right now from China here to the States. And I've got another customer sales rep that does like flatbed um, reverse logistics type shipping, right? So it's a different niche. So it's her niche, but it helps me be diversified as a business owner. In my agent side, I've got people that do, you know, freight forwarders as their customers. I've got, you know, construction uh, materials, building materials for the housing uh, sector. So if one person softens, another person might rise. So diversification in that matter is really important, especially as we head into, I mean, especially the times we're in and what we're going to experience in 2024. 
Um, but I will still say that you still want to try to hone in on some form of a niche and become an expert because that's really what's going to help drive loyalty to customers because at the end of the day, any industry that sees a softening might still have a player in that industry that's seeing growth. And unless you're a horse and plow operation uh, losing their job to a tractor, most of these industries are here for a while still. And being a niche player will just help solidify the business you will get. And it won't have customers jumping ship on you because you are an expert in that segment. Right, right, right. I think that's the perfect answer, man. You want to be both. You definitely got to have the depth, but you don't want to be pigeonholed. So having, like you said, these individual sales professionals who are going deep into whatever particular niche, it does help at the end of the day. And I guess even thinking about what you said earlier, it was only a matter of time having the, the paper route and having the friends work for you. I think about my earliest times of me just knowing that I wanted to be a business owner had to be in college when I was doing ballet. I was the ballet driver, but I was like, man, parking lots, that's a, that's a great business venture. Very low maintenance and you get this profit, this cash flow. And it makes me think about now in the freight game, is there a such thing as a low maintenance commodity or freight type that is low maintenance, you, you get the monies and it's not too much headache, consistent, but no headache. Is there such a thing today? That's an interesting question. Um, um, so toilet paper, you know, low damage, therefore low claims, uh, low value, maybe not a whole lot of theft going on, such as other items. Um, my favorite, uh, it's actually my niche, is IBC totes. Uh, these, these are totes that are being recycled, and they're already dirty. So if they show up dirty, no one knows if they got dirty under your watch or not. Um, some of them are never used again. They're just kind of carved up. The plastic's recycled. The steel is resellable. And if there's a, you know any kind of dings in the cage, no one's filing a claim because they don't know who put the ding in there. So that's pretty low maintenance. But I will say low maintenance freight, easy freight is also highly sought after freight. So while it might be easy to haul, it's hard to get because the competition is fierce. Usually the pricing is what I call commodity-based pricing, where the transportation is the lion's share of the expense, and therefore the customer will do whatever they can to save five, ten bucks. And if they can save five or ten bucks, that's five or ten more bucks to their bottom line. So I will always caution that easy freight may or may not be easy money. And if it is easy money, it's low margin easy money. So it takes a mass volume to make it worthwhile. Whereas specialized freight, high level of attention to detail, um, high value, those come with higher margins, a little harder to move, but the margins are worth it. And you put your effort into one load versus 10 loads to maybe make the same amount of profit. 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Makes perfect sense, my guy. Makes perfect sense. And look, I know that that's your favorite, right? Most people have a background in domestic truckloads, specifically drive-in. I mean, you can throw a rock and you're going to hit a drive-in somewhere. But is it way more challenging to do something over rail versus uh, just domestic truckload? So it depends, so it depends on, on what level, what level, of, of, what level, what you're, level you're gonna be involved, involved with, with rail. Rail. So let's go. Let's go with the simplest. Rail. The simplest. <laughs> you know, for people who are just beginning and they don't like. I said most folks. Um, they have a background in drive-ins, reefers at max. You know what I mean. So let's speak to that crowd right now. So I'd say, so the, I'd say the, the simplest, simplest route, route is that is rail, that is, rail easier is easier to move than drive-in, drive and it and is, it is because, because there's only X amount of players. You either, you either get in with, get the, in with CSX, the CSX, Thoroughbred, Streamline, or, or another called Loop. loop. But, but, or, or you go with like you the go. Schneiders and the uh, Swifts that have an intermodal division, right? So that's where you start. From there, all you have to do is email them or go on their web portals, get their capacity. If they even ship in that trade lane, they give you a price, they give you availability, and you dispatch the tender. And that's it. They... They actually take care of the pickup driver and box. They deal with the crane, getting it onto the flat car, and then they deal with getting it off the flat car and deliver to your receiver. So as long as the lane that you are quoting is an applicable rail lane, as long as your shipper is okay with a slightly longer transit time, and technically speaking, your shipper or the, the, the shipping location is responsible for the block and bracing of the freight, then you're good. Um, one pitfall to look out for is definitely the claim situation. Uh, again, going back to the block and bracing rule, you are responsible for block and bracing the load, not the rail carrier. So now if you have, if you ship some, we'll say some food grade product and a skid collapses on itself because it's beverage, let's say, and they like to sometimes collapse on themselves if they're too tall. Then if there's no proof of blocking and bracing and you file a claim for one collapsed skid, the rail line will deny the claim because you have not provided proof of block and bracing. Whereas in a truck, in a dry van, if that same skid collapses, you generally might be able to file against the carrier, right or wrong, and that claim most likely will get paid out, but for rail, it won't. They will absolutely deny it. Um, and there's no fighting a rail line. There's no way you have more money than they do in lawyers. So uh, rail is easier as long as it's applicable, but there are you know caveats to shipping rail. I'm one of those people <laughs> who does not have a lot of experience on the rail, but lots of domestic truckload experience. So that gave me great insight right there. And just thinking about where the market is, or at least some of the trends, you hear all this nearshoring. You hear about these partnerships where you can go straight from Mexico all the way up to Canada, and now straight from Mexico all the way to the East Coast. Is that something that you guys are trying to partake in, that business, that nearshoring boom? Is that something you're thinking about? Well, when we talk about nearshoring with regards to manufacturing and everything, not especially we don't really mess around with mexico because mexico is a lot harder to deal with there's a more limited pool of carriers and I, i'm not an expert so i'm just going to give you the information i know and which is 
you know, Mexican trucking companies, their uh, their rules and regulations in Mexico are far more lax than U.S. standards for trucks. So the trucks you will see on the highways of Mexico wouldn't cut it here in the States. So therefore, Mexican trucks are not allowed into the United States much further than a certain radius of border towns like Laredo, Del Rio, El Paso, etc. So what happens is you as a carrier need to have an alignment. Oh, okay. And in the same token, because we don't allow Mexican trucks too far into the country, Mexico doesn't really want American trucks too far in their country, even though they exceed standards. So what they do instead is they make trailer interchange agreements. The American, the U.S.-based trucking company will bring the trailer to a crossing yard, warehouse, facility, whatever. The trailers can go over into Mexico, and the Mexican carrier will take the trailer in and then bring the trailer back. So we have gone into Mexico with uh, window material, uh, glass, and the via flatbed. And the flatbed trailer, we ha the U.S. carrier has to allow us to bring the trailer into Mexico. And my customer already has that agreement with a Mexican carrier. So we were able to perform that function. Um, large companies like CFI, where I got my education from in regards to shipping to Mexico, they have their own Mexican carrier. So they would ship trailers into Mexico with the Mexican carrier. Now, on the flip side, when we go north to our neighbors in Canada, it's a lot different. Canada and the U.S. function very interchangeably. As long as you have an operating authority for the other country, you're allowed in as far as you want to go. Now, there are certain rules, such as a Canadian carrier that has the authority to come into the United States, from my understanding, cannot pick up a load in the United States and deliver it in the United States. Any load that they pick up in the United States after they deliver has to go back to Canada as a destination. And likewise with the U.S. So if you, let's say you own a truck, Jory, and you're up in Toronto having a hard time finding a reload back into the country and someone's, someone posts up a local Toronto run. So you're like, let me make a quick 300 bucks or whatever. You can't do that legally. You've got to get that load back into the country. So something has to take you back in the United States. So that's the one difference. Uh, the one thing we've never messed with is the customs. I always, um, you know, I don't have that service to do all that for the customer. So the customer has to give me a broker information and I relay that to the carrier. Um, so we do a little bit of Canada, but again, there's a lot of freight in the country and we, I usually just stick to the U.S. stuff. Right, right, right. Well, thank you for that, brother. And I did want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Nationwide Prestige Warehousing and uh, 3PO Services, formerly known as Exalted Innovations. Uh, they are an organization founded on faith in 2020. They are providing those 3PO services in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and are currently expanding into New Jersey, into Atlanta, and the Miami markets. So if you're interested in getting some 3PO services in those areas, please reach out to them. They also do consulting in e-commerce, sourcing, and procurement. Uh, so yeah, just reach out to Nationwide Prestige Warehousing and 3PL Services. Um, but yeah, man, look, there's a lot I really want to cover. <laughs> it's really based on the amount of time that you have, but the do's and don'ts are very important, especially for where we are 
in this freight market. You mentioned what the freight game was looking like in 2008 and the things that it led to, but let's 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 come a little bit more recent. Let's just say 2020, right? If somebody wasn't in freight sales in 2020, prior to the boom, you know, what was life like for you in 2020 and how did it change in 2021 with the boom in e-commerce and all that money people got with those stimmies and did all that ordering? Like, how was life different for you between those two years? So, so you, you never saw never anything, saw anything prior, prior to, to COVID, COVID to 2020. To 2020. It, it, it was all, it the, was challenge. all the challenge. No doubt. No doubt. But, but it was, it was a, little a little easier. You could get, you people, could to get people to pick up the phone. You could you get them, could to, get talk them to, to talk to you. Yes, they're yes, getting phone calls, calls every day. But it was three to five, you know, other brokers calling, you know, every day. Everything was still, you know, the the, the commodity based loads were still heavily price driven. Relationships. And relationships were still valued. Then bring in 2020, 2021. You know, in 2020, the market the market softened greatly because a lot of the big whale customers who have more media exposure to what they do in the political environment, they shut down, right? Because everybody shut down in March, so they shut down as well. So therefore, all these trucks were left with no freight to move because all these large manufacturers, car manufacturers, they all shut down. And so then prices got super depressed because wheels had to keep turning. But then all the lights came back on. And there weren't a lot of trucks. Some trucks left the market. They, some drivers were done. They're like, forget it. I'm done. I'm going to go do this, whatever this was. So then there was a shortage of trucks momentarily. But like anything, when there's blood in the water, then too many sharks show up. And what happened was a whole bunch of people showed up and they started getting into the trucking game, which is resulting in what we have right now, which is too many trucks. So they talk about a driver shortage. I don't buy that for a minute. I haven't bought that for about 10 years. Um, so when, when the COVID buying stopped and everything went back to normal, and I've been to um, economic seminars showing the charts, we are actually back to normal, so to speak, as far as an economy as a whole, where if you take 2020 and 2021 out of the equation and the blips that it had, the, the, the severe drop and the severe spike, we're still on a, a pretty level trajectory that we've been on for the last decade plus. And, but the difference this time was that there's too many trucks. There's so many more trucks. And so everybody starts fighting to get the freight and to keep the wheels turning. But the buying is only so good because there's only so much freight. Now we're starting to see the market softened as well. And because of that, now it's looking even worse than what it's you know, than 2008 looked like. In, in my opinion, this is a harder market than 2008. And, you know, it's going to be a longer painful market than anyone had in 20, you know, the trucks had the pain in 2020. The brokers had the pain in 2021. We all have the pain in, uh, in 22 and 23. And I think it's still going to be painful in 24. Man, yeah, thank you so much for going through that. And it just makes me, 
think about, I mean, exactly what you said, the overcapacity right now. There are so many trucks that are in the game still where people are saying, man, these trucks, these these small owner operators are very resilient. Uh, they would have imagined them to have already been pushed out of the market. And I guess I just have to ask you, man, being on the brokerage side of things, how does it feel when analysts say that things will bounce back but only once enough carriers get pushed out of the market like man how does that feel i mean it's it's a sad reality yeah unfortunately uh i do know it'll bounce back it always does that's the thing this is the third recession that i've been through in the freight industry the first time i tucked tail and i went and worked for a different company doing a slightly different um uh, job so i wasn't as impacted the second time was 0809 and i fought through it and won and i'll fight through this and win as well but yeah unfortunately it's going to come at bloodshed right that's the only way markets rebound just as the fed will stop raising interest rates when people start losing their jobs it's kind of sick and twisted if you think about it like jerome powell wants you to lose your job and then he will then stop raising interest rates you know it's terrible but it's the reality. We we have to thin out the herd, including brokers, quite honestly. And we've seen it. We've seen very large brokers this year, you know, shut down shop within a, a week or two of it becoming a little bit more public. You know, the convoy and the SE uh, was it SEL and Surge. They they all shut down somewhat abruptly uh, with this market. Right. And I mean, everybody talks about Convoy, of course, but Smith Eagle, <laughs> I used to see those trucks everywhere, everywhere because they had a cool little design on them. So I remember I was like, oh, is that the same company that rebranded as SEL? And yep, sure was. But, you know, even thinking about the carrier, the small fleet owner and maybe even the owner operator, a lot of those folks have begun to least on to those larger companies, you know, any way where they can cut costs on insurance or whatever. Um, I don't know if that's the case with brokers, though. You know, what happens in this type of market when there's a broker who is operating, they have their own authority, but things get tough? Do they ever go and try to find the larger player to work under their authority? Is that what you've seen? Well, I think what we mainly see because it's so it flies under the radar because there's so many small brokers just as there's so many small trucking companies but we hear the trucking company stories usually for brokers they just they shut down maybe the owner reincarnates into an, another broker and gives it another run I don't know there's not a lot of <clears throat> there's one avenue to go with with regards to brokerage when your brokerage suffers it's usually due to a loss of business, not so much controlling expenses. You've lost business. So the only avenue to really go through as far as signing up with a big bull, well, there's two avenues, right? You, you, you close and you go and be an employee and you go work for a larger three letter agents, you know, brokerage and, you know, do your thing under a corporate umbrella. Or there's also an agent model. So if, if times get too tough and you can't keep your back office in check financially, but you still have business coming in, an agent model would be the proper fallback because you lose that expense, so to speak. 
you do also lose part of the profit with an agent model, but it gives you a little bit more of a landing pad to where your success will come from your ability to sell, not your ability to cash flow and to deal with your back office. Right, right, right. And thinking about that, the dues of a freight agency program, just off the top, you know, what are some things that folks who are interested in joining and they have all the skill set, they have all of the soft skills and the desire, the tenacity, all those things to be successful in that type of role. What are the things they want to see as a part of that agreement? You know, just high level and maybe we can delve a little deeper from there. So if you're so from the angle of let's say you want to become a freight agent with a uh, brokerage that offers it, the, the dues as far as what you want to check into is number one, check the check the fee schedule. You know, every brokerage that has an agent model can advertise 70-30 split, meaning the broker, or I'm sorry, the agent gets 70% and the broker, the house, would get 30% of the profit, the gross profit of a load. But you got to dig a little deeper. So there was a former brokerage called Network FOB. They have since collapsed and they failed uh, years ago. They had a $25 transaction fee for every load. So if you moved a load for $100 of profit, you had $75 of profit, of which I would get 30% and you get 70%. If you moved a load for a loss of $25, you still owed $25. So now you're in the hole for 50 bucks to the house. So there's those nickel and diming. Um, do you want your money paid quicker than they offer? It's a, maybe a percentage point. Do you want customer service support for some reason? extra percent you know there's little nickel and diming there's holdbacks there's bad debt all sorts of things so check the fine print on the fee schedule because i you know i think you will find many brokerages will have little fees where you are not getting 70 percent at the end of the day now the other thing you know so the, there's the financial side of it the other side is the operational side of it how how established is a broker how many agents do they have? How long has the agents that they do have, how long have they been there? What's the technology stack? That's a huge one. I mean, are they offering a TMS? Are they offering load boards or do they charge you? Again, going back to the nickel and diming. Um, one thing I've seen, and it, it, I don't know how people even get agents this way, is there's brokers out there that talk about factoring. And if you are a broker factoring and then you're looking for an agent, you are doing yourself a disservice and you're doing the agent a disservice because and we, we can get into the economics of factoring with regards to the agent model, but no one wins in that model. I mean, there's a whole lot of profit going out the window and the broker is going to eventually collapse. Okay. I mean, well, if you could spend 45 seconds on that, I mean, I know it's probably a little bit more complex, but what do you mean there? Um, you know, who's doing the factoring? Are you saying that the agent is getting factored so that they can pay the carriers quicker? Is that what you're saying? No. So, so in the broker agent model, the agent, all they have to do is sell book trucks, track the trucks, and that's it. So as far as compliance, the the broker, 
the house is in charge of that. Paying the carriers, the house pays for that. The agent only has to get, make sales and get the sales complete. Now, the quick answer on the factoring is there are brokers, the, the house, that still factor their receivables. But you can't factor receivables and still offer a 70-30 split on profits because you're losing so much profit right off the top by factoring that that agent is probably getting maybe 40% of the profit, if that, at the end of the day. Right. Now that makes perfect sense because we're saying of whatever total profit there could be, now we're talking about 2-3% of the entire load being taken by advancing payment with the factoring company. So now what are we really talking about on the profit of the whole load? Okay. Duly noted. I got that for sure. And okay. Okay. So what's a fair commission structure to you as an agent expecting 70 30 right out the gate or is there anything else that you would find or you think is uh also normal in this agent model the normal, the normal route, route is 70 70 30. that's pretty normal there are a couple brokers out there uh, my competitors that offer a little bit more and i even offer a little bit more because i have an agent model if um you know, if you're if you're a superstar, what I call a mega agent, and you're bringing twenty million dollars of revenue to the company, the uh, the splits can start at eighty twenty. And and my my model, you can make as much as ninety ten through the course of a portion of the year, uh, if you're like really good. I mean, but you have to bring millions of profit to the table, but you also make a lot of money. As far as um, Anything beyond that, as far like lower, I've heard models where maybe it's a 65, 35 or 60, 40 split, but there's a lot more handholding. I mean, if you're brand new to the industry, a lot of brokerages, and unfortunately, typically myself included, we don't offer those kind of agent models. But there are reputable brokers out there that might do that, but they might take 40%, or I'm sorry, yeah, they might take 40%. And leave you 60, but in return, they're giving you a little bit more hand holding. So, if you're getting some hand holding or you're getting lead generation, you know, if a broker says, Hey, Jory, if you come over here, we'll, we'll hand you any leads coming out of the Southeast. If they call us looking for a broker, we'll give it to you. But those leads are 60 40 because we have some SEO money, you know, wrapped up in getting that lead. So we're going to take 64, you know, we're going to do a 60-40 on those. That's not unfair by any chance, you know, stretch because typically an agent is responsible for getting their own customers. So if you're getting assistance, it's worth a sacrifice of profit. Right, right, right. Yeah, that does make sense. I mean, a lot of folks have come into the game without having previous experience in transportation as a whole. <laughs> you know, the fact that yes, you had yes. all of that experience um before you went off on your own was amazing you know being on the carrier the warehousing side of things all of those essentially helped you as a broker in being able to sell to your future clients but a lot of folks don't have any of that who came once they heard about the golden age of trucking and the big boom over here in the supply chain so it's very interesting and we're discussing the agent model right but what about those like what's the difference between a straight commission 
role and the roles that you might see posted on LinkedIn that have like a salary listed of, let's just say, 120000 but they require the candidate to have a active book of business. Like, talk about that. What is What are they really doing there and how is it different from the agent model? So if someone's offering salary, that to me goes to immediate employment, which now means you are relegated to their rules of their company. So if they make you show up at an office, you are showing up at an office. If you have certain benchmarks, you have to hit those certain benchmarks and failure to do that could result in you losing your job. At the same time, you are signing agreements to not bring your customers with should you leave. Should that company not be a good fit for you, you are most likely signing a non-solicit at a minimum, possibly still a non-compete, which I don't agree with those anymore. We actually did away with those. But you are basically signing your success away should it not work and you need to start over. Now, with an agent model, it's completely different because an agent, you're not an employee. And in fact, my agreements flat out say you're not an employee. So you lose the benefits. You know, we have health insurance. We have a 401k here, but we don't, we can't offer those to you as an agent. But at the same time, we also can't tell you when you're working or when you're not working. We can't, you know, we don't hold you to goals so much unless you want to, unless we have that kind of relationship, you know, you are paid on what you do. You're not paid on speculation. So if I bring on an agent today, they have to bring some business, of course, or else they probably won't last long with me. But they also don't have a quota. Whereas the new sales rep I just hired two weeks ago, he's going to fall into a quota soon. And if he doesn't make it, he's not going to make it. So that's the difference. You, you get to control your destiny a little better with an agent model. You get to do what you want to do. You know, they, they've done work in Miami and Vegas while they're on vacation. I can, I, I don't, I don't get to tell them, Hey, Devin, you should be at home. You should be at an office. It's not my place. He's doing, he's doing what I, you know, what he needs to do. He's doing a great job, but yet he's able to live his life the way he wants to. And got you, brother. Got you, got you, got you. Um, and it lets you know that everybody in the supply chain, it's a, it's a relational game, man. You definitely got to take care of those relationships and it's a small game once you're once you're in it in it you realize that everybody's connected in some way probably between one or two degrees you're connected with everybody in the supply chain so that's pretty dope yeah no, it can be and that's the, that's the thing that a lot of people underestimate is just how tight this industry can become especially if you're a bad actor um you know, it's, what, it's somewhere over a trillion dollars worth the logistics industry. At one point, it was like 10% of the United States GDP. I mean, it's it's tremendously large, but at the same time, it's super small. And my, my boss had this mentality. He had this mentality that if he stayed insulated in a shell, his customers were in the same shell. And that's just ignorance. At the end of the day, your customers are getting the same 10 phone calls every day, regardless of your activity inside or outside social media and networking. So you might as well network because you never know what you're going to find when you get out there. 100% brother, 100%. And as far as 
the don'ts of this freight agency program. And you just said something, bad actor. Don't be a bad actor because it is a very tight industry. People are gonna talk about it and you're gonna get pushed out. Nobody wants that. So just be a good person <laughs> and do things the way yeah. that, treat people how you wanna be treated, essentially. Um, now on the freight agency side of things, are there any red flags that immediately scream out to you? I know we talked about a few, you know, reading the fine print, but anything that you didn't cover that would just scream, run, this is not the freight agency program for you. Well, again, ask them, ask if you're interviewing a broker to become an agent, ask them what they factor. If they factor, run. Um, we factored for about three months when we first started the company, but we also didn't have an agent program because it's kind of like being irresponsible parents and having, or irresponsible adults and having kids don't do it get responsible first so when we got our cash right then we you know went after this whole freight agent uh model so if they factor run if they don't have some of the uh, insurances like the contingent cargoes and contingent auto liabilities i probably wouldn't sign up with them that means they don't have any large clients already so when you possibly try to onboard a customer that has that requirement for supplemental insurance that a lot of customers do these days, that is a huge, tremendous expense. It's a six-figure expense for my company today. So I doubt the broker is going to drop $100,000 to get your customer onboarded if you are collecting 70% of the profit, you know, and they're collecting 30. They'll never see profit from that point. Um, they don't have software. They don't have a TMS run if they don't have any brokerage or any other agents I, I don't know if i'd be the guinea pig honestly this day and age there's plenty of great brokers and i understand i was i was one of those brokers i didn't have an agent at one time but it's there's a lot of people that are using the agent model as their means of business and i don't i think that starts to separate them from reality I run a brokerage. I have employees. So like, we'll, we'll, we'll stay on the, the Hudson since you know them. If And they have had a problem. They had a problem with a load once. We've all had problems with loads. If they were at another brokerage that just was an agent model and end of story, they either had to figure out the solution themselves or they had to hopefully network with another agent by then. Because if they called the home office, all they do is get a bookkeeper and how's a bookkeeper going to know how to solve a problem of a driver who's not communicating? Whereas in this example, he called me and he said, Matt, what, what would Matt do? And I told him, I said, well, yeah, this happened to me once. And here's what I did. Here's the steps I did. And we found the driver. So if, if the brokerage only has agents, really ask yourself, what value does that brokerage bring to you? Aside from a bag of money, you can find a bag of money anywhere if you keep looking. But if they're not going to bring you a value in your operation, they're probably not worthwhile. And that's what I saw, unfortunately, in my last boss. My last boss, I stopped seeing value because he didn't help me rebuild my business directly. He was not involved. I was, and the carrier team was. So then I asked myself, why am I working for somebody? So that's the same thing you should ask about a brokerage when you're interviewing. Why am I working for a brokerage that doesn't provide me any back office or any operational value? Should I actually need it? 
Right, right, right. Great points. Great points. And two questions on the insurance side of things, right? Um, who foots the bill if a claim happens and there's a gap in the carrier's insurance coverage? Is it the agent or is it the home office, the brokerage? So when it comes to any loss, and my company included, it's going to be the agent. That is the cost of being a business owner because you are at the end of the day. Just because you don't off, you know, operate your back office, does that make you any less of a business owner? You are a business owner. So if there's a loss in a load, you absorb 100% of that loss. If there's uh, bad debt, you absorb 100% of the bad debt. If there's uh, a claim and there's a shortfall, you're absorbing that too. Now there's there's things around, there, there are programs in place, uh, bad debt, I carry AR insurance. So 100% of bad debt does not mean 100% loss. If, if let's say you have a client that's $50,000 in the hole, they go bankrupt. In most agent models, the broker is coming back to the agent saying, okay, Bill, you owe me $50,000 because your customer didn't pay. In my model, I turn over a claim to my insurance provider. Underwriter writes me a check for 90% of the bad debt, so $45,000. And now me and the agent are having a $5,000 discussion. And I'm fortunately in a position to where I'm not going to take all $5,000 in one swoop. While I lost five thousand dollars in one swoop, I'm going to take it out in payments. You know, so I usually give some mercy to the agent because I feel bad. It sucks, but I take it out in payments. So I've got a I got an agent who uh, will have claims a couple times a year. Uh, they're pretty small claims for lost freight, um, just damaged because it's weather. Uh, it's weather dependent, and the weather will destroy this product. And you know, she usually has to pony up, you know, eleven thousand dollars for a claim. Um, she'll do it on her own dime, but we'll, we'll do it in installment payments. Gotcha, man. I hear you. And that, that makes me think about the insurance coverage you have on your AR, your accounts receivable. I wonder, are there many trucking companies that have the ability to do that or if they've ever considered it? And it makes me think about, again, some of these brokerages who have gone out of business and then just shut doors, filed bankruptcy, and the folks running the freight were left, you know, without the bag or uh, with some 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 negative debt. It makes me think about Meadowlark, you know, the carriers that were trying to chase them down to get money for the months and months right before, you know, up until they went out of business. Um, but yeah, I just I, I've never heard about a carrier. Uh, having that type of insurance coverage. And it seems like it's just as important as anything else these days, uh, whether it be cargo, automobile, or, you know, liability as a, as a whole. So interesting, interesting, man. Last thing, last uh, question. You said specifically contingent. I've talked to insurance agents about the carrier side of things, forwards and backwards on this stage. I have so much content around it but not so much on the broker side of things. What does that really look like having that coverage? Why do you need it? Why do shippers want to see it? And when does it come into play? You know, I know that's a lot of questions. <laughs> I yeah, said yeah. one and I hit you with five, <laughs> but you know, so, I, yeah. So this is, the, I'm going to give you the blunt Matt Perkins answer, and then I'll give you the flowery 
insurance salesman answer. The blunt Matt Perkins answer is quite frankly, customers don't know what they're asking for. Um, they were told by a lawyer who is on payroll and needs to earn their keep, or if they're on you know retainer, they need to earn their $400 an hour. And they're gonna tell you that the broker needs to have skin in the game. They need to have this policy, okay? And you know, underwriters will not write a direct policy for cargo for a broker because the broker never takes ownership of said cargo. And they will never write a direct policy of auto liability because again, we don't even own the truck and we never even see the truck in 99.99% of loads we broker. So they, they bring it down to this level of contingent and contingent will mean that basically they're the secondary. So if something happens and I'll give you a real world example, we had a die mold, uh, that produced an item, uh, a mold, you know, where you inject it with what, you know, whatever material to produce a molded item. In this case, it was the passenger door of the Ford F-150, the top selling truck for the last two decades or three, I think. And it fell off the truck. Uh, driver did not uh, secure it properly, fell off the truck. And it was damaged and not cheap. And the insurance company for the trucking company was kind of dragging their feet a little bit. So the customer wanted a file on ours and it just wasn't really going to happen. Um, the insurance companies, to put it bluntly, do not want to pay out claims. They will do everything in their power to refute and refuse a claim. So that's the blunt Matt Perkins answer. It's something that customers want because they were told by a lawyer they should have. So we as brokers have to drop a lot of money to have policies that really don't hold water. Um, and then there's a flowery answer, and that is there are there can, there can very well be some circumstances where it could pay out and be kind of that protection. Um, but again, it's a secondary. It uh, You have to go through the primary first. The secondary will not even allow you, like my insurance broker, will not even allow me to file a claim unless I produce a letter to them saying, hey, this was the carrier's insurance policy. They denied this claim. I want to submit it through you. And then we will have to jump through those hoops. But they will not even talk to me until I have a refusal from the trucking company's insurance provider. Man, makes sense. And thank you for your, your insights on that one again, because it's more common to talk about insurance in the commercial trucking space on the trucker side but being able to have these folks who are interested in the agent model and them know what's behind the scenes on at least the the insurance side is very important so thank you there um you know where can people find more information about your organization about business to business logistics llc if they want to ship with you if they want to drive for you or if they want to work under your brokerage authority part of the agent program how can they find out more information well uh if you want to start talking to me directly linkedin is where i'm gonna get a little bit more active this year uh it's where i'm active today so it's just matthew perkins picture of me um you know, my logo's everywhere on my LinkedIn page. So that's how you can get a hold of me directly, immediately. Um, as far as learning more about the company, the agent program, just simply go to our website. That's shipbtb.com. 
Uh, one thing I actually created, and I created it for FreightFest, but I didn't really get a chance to talk about it because we had decided to do a broker panel versus uh, an individual um, panel, you know, individual uh, presentation by me, is I created a calculator, and it's on my website. Um, and it's, it's a freight agent calculator, and it compares what we offer as a freight broker house to our agents and what the costs are should you go it alone. And you can simply plug in your anticipated sales and your anticipated profit margins, and then it's going to really calculate the rest as far as how many loads you're going to be moving to get to those numbers and et cetera. And then from there, it's going, you're going to answer a bunch of yes-no questions in a single file. And if you answer no, it's going to give you a warning of why maybe you should answer yes. And if you answer yes, it'll tally up all your dollars, right? And then at the end of the day, it's going to compare, hey, if you went on your own, it's going to cost you this and you're going to make this. But if you became an agent for us, it's going to, it's going to make you that. And then you can compare the two. And what I have found is if you take all of our services and you were to pay for them yourself, you're only going to make about 5% more, but you're going to have a hundred, I mean, an absolute hundred percent of the risk. You're going to have zero guidance and you're going to have a whole lot of risk for that extra 5%, which may not be worth, worth it to some. And I don't think it really is sometimes. That was perfect information. Thank you so much for that tool um, because people need to see it just in common terms and just being able to see the facts and figures right in front of them. So thank you for uh, talking about that tool. And do you do you know about the Unishipper, the N-Express type of models? Is that something that you are interested in? I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so are you talking Unishippers as far as uh, shipping LTL? Yeah, they kind of, so they have these franchise models under those two brands that I just mentioned, where, you know, if you're, if you're looking for customers that do the full gambit of um, shipping, whether it be parcel, whether it be LTL, whether it be full truckload or international, like they, it's kind of like a, a business in a box where you have, it comes fully stacked with all these relationships um, to move all those, you know, shipment types um just by way of purchasing the franchise and i was just wondering like if you ever thought about that um when you have all that kind of stuff you're giving up money you know it, it is kind of signing on to a house who gets let's just say that 30 percent cut of profits um but you know just thinking about have you ever considered that or if you had just wondering if you had a take on it no, I, so I've never looked at the actual franchise model of like the Unishippers, and I believe Blue Grace, if I'm not mistaken, offered a franchise model. What I can tell you is we are an agent for Priority One, and so they provide us LTL pricing, and that is how we are able to provide aggressive pricing because we could not go to Sayas and Wards and Old Dominions and negotiate the discount level that Priority One has, so we wouldn't be competitive in that market. I will say personally, and this is only my opinion, I don't chase parcel freight because you're going to, you know, I don't know the margins. Okay. So I'm going to be speaking maybe a little bit ignorantly, but I feel in order to be competitive shipping a box via UPS, you're going to only be able to make a couple dollars, but then everyone's going to sit there and tell me, Matt, Matt, but you know, I'm going to land a shipper that's got a hundred boxes a day. Great. Maybe you will, maybe. 
and now that turns into a couple hundred dollars of doing nothing, right? Because your customer is going to use UPS's system, um, I forgot what it's called, but to, to get everything done. But at the end of the day, you still need to bookkeep that all those boxes. You still need to account for all those boxes somehow. And I just feel like the profits aren't worth it. I'd rather chase a truckload and make 150 bucks or so, or maybe something really you know, weird and specialized and make more than to chase these $1, $2 boxes that ship 100 a day. I just don't see the value in it personally. Um, but no, I mean, we do align with Priority One and we do provide LTL pricing that way. Um, that's all I really know. I don't know what goes into becoming a franchise and what you what the pros and cons are of that. Right, right, right. Well, no, thank you for that. Well, look, man, that's that's everything I had. Um, any closing remarks before we headed out? You know, just uh, if you're looking at getting into this, I've been giving the advice lately that personally, I think you've got to pay your dues. And there's a saying that I say, uh, you got to start at day one. And sometimes as, as eager as you might be to go and start your own brokerage or even maybe your own agency, go work for somebody. Just spend some time working for somebody. If it's six months, if it's six years. I mean, I spent 10 years in this business specifically as a freight broker before I started my own brokerage. You, you, it, there's a lot of young audience members out there. Just pay your dues. You don't get to skip day one and go right to day two. You've got to do day one. And sometimes that means working for somebody, but they will teach you and they will pay you to learn. Because it's a much cheaper lesson for somebody to pay you when, when you work for somebody than for you to go on your own and the losses are all your expense. You're not getting paid. So that's my advice. Great advice. I stand on that 100%. And uh, I thank you for that. Um, as we close, I did want to give a huge shout out to our sponsor, Thai Software. I'm not sure who you use as your TMS provider, but Thai Software is helping brokerages of all sizes streamline their processes and scale their businesses. So whether you are a brokerage specializing in that full truckload space or LTL or even the parcel, uh, they have a solution for you. So tell them I sent you. Um, but yeah, brother, thank you again for your time this morning but yeah oh everybody else <laughs> tune in on monday as we partner up with freightwave sonar team to let you know where you should position your trucks to take advantage of the market and next week we are supposed to be talking to one brother i mean it's, it's on it's on it's still pending you know his his wife is pregnant and she's due like right now so we'll see if that's gonna happen or if we're gonna have just our our quarterly networking session um but yeah i appreciate everybody for tuning in and matt brother you be blessed sir jury sure. same to you appreciate uh, being on your show thank you brother thank you have a blessing